the earth receives energy from the sun equal to the energy of the largest nuclear explosion known to man. Every second. The sun is a seething mass of perpetual nuclear explosions, and in the center, it reaches temperatures as hot as 15 million degrees Celsius, which is slightly more warm than Edmonton in the winter. Could you take all that? Could you take all of that and stuff it in to the size of a small candle. Could you do that? I think that would be hard. I think that would be impossible. Well, how about this? Could you take yourself, everything you are, and everything you know, your body and your soul, everything, and could you reduce yourself into a speck of dust. That would be hard. That would be impossible. You know, those things are easy compared to what God did on Christmas Day a little more than 2,000 years ago. The sun into a candle, you or me into a speck of dust are easy compared to what he did when Christ was born. He was made man. Four words which are an impossibility, and yet they happened. The incarnation is God's unexpected solution to the problem caused by our sin. You remember what we did back there in paradise in Genesis chapter 3. We said we want to become God. And how has it turned out for us? Well, just look around us in the world that's been going for many, many years, and there are wars and rumors of wars and suffering and pain and disease and conflict and every other dark and horrible thing you can imagine. We really did open Pandora's box, and we've been suffering the consequences ever since. And in the incarnation, God does the opposite. If we've messed things up by trying to become God... God will repair things by God going in the other direction. God becoming man. God's solution to the problem of human sin and rebellion is unsettling. It unsettles and it upsets the precarious house of cards that we fallen human sinners have built up, the whole system of power and privilege, the little kingdoms we've carved out for ourselves in this world. Christ's birth as the king of kings turns everything upside down. And if you think about it, that means he turns everything back the right way up, doesn't it? We turned everything upside down in the fall. He comes back and turns it around again. And as we consider The gospel from Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses this morning. The Holy Spirit teaches us that the birth of the King of Kings demands a response, either of worship or of warfare. And we'll see that as we go through these verses. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. 
when they were walking out and calculating the year 1 AD, year of our Lord, 1, I won't go into all the details, but somebody messed up because the Lord Jesus was probably born about 4 BC, which is a little awkward that the Lord Jesus was born four years before Christ. But that's our mistake, not his. The colonel is a little out. He was born at the very end of King Herod's reign. And as we come into chapter 2 of Matthew and the story of the wise men, this is quite some time after the events of Luke chapter 2, the birth in Bethlehem and the visit of the shepherds. Sometimes we see on, on Christmas cards, we see the shepherds and the wise men all together. That's, that's not going to work because the Lord Jesus is probably about one year old, a little, little more than one year old. He's a toddler when the wise men come to visit. Now, why are they still in Bethlehem? They went there for the census. You know that from Luke 2. Why are they still there? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it's possible and likely that Joseph, knowing who his son is, knowing who the son of Mary is, has decided that his son should be brought up in the royal city of David, which is just a few kilometers away from the center of power, Jerusalem, just a few kilometers down the road. And so they're still there. And then wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now from the east, I won't go into all the details, but scholars understand that this is almost certainly Babylon. The Babylonians were known for their study of the stars. Already for thousands of years by the time the Lord Jesus was born, and especially the last seven or eight hundred years before his birth, they really got serious about scientifically studying the stars, observing them, calculating things. They knew the skies. They knew the stars. They knew the planets. They knew what, what they were talking about. In fact, Babylonian records and the way that they observe the heavens is actually the foundation to modern astronomy. We find records of decades and decades and centuries of star gazing in a very scientific way. So they knew what the sky was supposed to look like, and they knew when something was different. They certainly did. Now what would make these men come from Babylon, from the east, to Jerusalem? Now we have to understand that these are wise men. And they pass on knowledge from generation to generation. And a number of centuries ago, who was the chief of the wise men in Babylon? If you look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, we read this. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So they knew the historical record from Daniel's time. They knew the story of what happened at the end of the Babylonian kingdom centuries before. You remember that story, children, when uh, 
the prince was feasting in the banqueting house and the hand appeared and, and wrote on the wall. And when, when Daniel interpreted that to mean you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, you've been weighed in the scales and you've been found wanting, and that very night the Babylonian empire came to its end. The Medes and the Persians stormed the palace and killed Belshazzar. Well, you know what was rising in the night sky in that, in that night that the Babylonian Empire came to its end? The constellation Libra. Astronomers can calculate this. They can turn back the planetarium and they can see what the sky looked like on that date. And as Daniel was prophesying the fall of Babylon that very night, the constellation Libra was rising in the sky. The Babylonians knew that constellation as the scales. The scales. You have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. So these wise men are heirs of a long tradition of study. They know the sky. They know that what happens on earth is sometimes uh, uh, there are portents or omens of that in the sky. They know that what has happened in the heavens can mean something for what is happening here on earth. And most likely, they had also heard from Daniel himself about that ancient prophecy, a star will come from Jacob and a scepter arise in Israel. Well, whatever it was, the Bible doesn't give us the details, whatever it was, they saw something and they knew something which was convincing enough to make them come to Jerusalem. And where else would they go? Jerusalem is the capital city. They're looking for a king. That's where they go. And when they arrive, what do they say? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They don't say, where is he who maybe sometime in the future is going to become a king? They say, someone has been born, and he is a king, and we have come to worship him. Where is he? We saw his star when it rose. Literally, the text says, we saw his star in the rising. And that's why some translations, maybe your Bible says, we've seen his star in the east. The east in Greek is the word rising, because it's the rising of the sun. Now, what is this star that the, that the wise men saw? And lots of work has been done over the years by top astronomers. They've been running the planetariums backwards to the time of Jesus' birth, trying to see what's happening in the heavens. And there are some very ingenious explanations. But for us, it's enough to know that something so significant happened that they were moved to travel roughly 1,300 kilometers from Babylon to Jerusalem. And just to give us kind of an idea of what that might look like, imagine uh, hopping into your camel here in St. Albert and traveling by camel all the way to Prince George in BC, and then from Prince George down to Kamloops. That's about the length of their journey. By camel, and going, I mean, they didn't have to go 1,000 meters up to get over the Rockies, but they did have to go 600 meters down into the Jordan Valley and then back up the other side. So it's roughly similar. And by camel, it'll take you about a month if you're in a hurry, or a little more if you stop along the way. So they've come to worship him. They've come to worship him. Now the word worship in our text means to fall down, to prostrate yourself before, 
to, to pay homage to a superior, it can refer to worshiping God or it can refer to worshiping a human superior. But in Matthew, every time this word is used, it's reserved for the worship of the divine. Why would they come all that way to worship an unknown child? Well, perhaps they somehow have got some inside information about the Messiah, the the Christ, the the divine Savior that Israel is waiting for. Somehow, God has made it obvious to them that something important is happening and that they want to be there and that they want to worship this new king. And you would think that when they arrive in Jerusalem and tell the people of God this, you would think there will be general rejoicing and happiness because the the people of God have been waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah to come. And now he's come. He's been born. Oh, come. Oh, come. Let us adore him. You would think they would start singing. But what is the reaction? Look at verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was troubled. Now, Herod was a a wicked old man, a nasty fellow, killed a lot of people, killed his own family, killed his wife, killed his children. He was pretty free and easy with who he killed and when he killed them. Somebody once said it's, it's probably better to be Herod's pig than to be his son because he didn't eat pig meat, so you were safe if you were his pig. He didn't care about God or man, but he cared about power And he didn't want trouble. Now, who's the emperor at this time? Caesar Augustus is emperor. And about 60 years earlier in Rome, just a few months before Caesar Augustus was born, there was an omen observed that a new king would soon be born for the Romans. And the Senate, the big, powerful people, they panicked. And they made a decree that no child born in that year should be allowed to live. Every child that was born should be exposed and left to die because they didn't want the prophecy to become true. These people, they lived in a different time. We can't imagine this. We think our leaders and politicians sometimes do bad things. Well, there's nothing compared to the way leaders and politicians did things back in the day. They were all too ready to kill and to massacre anybody that stood in their way. So what would the emperor do if he found out that in one of the provinces a king was born and important people were coming from distant lands to pay homage? What would he do? We know from Roman historians that there was a general idea at this time that at one point a great king or leader would be born in Judea who would become ruler of the world. This was general knowledge. It was talked about, not just amongst the Jews. And so Herod doesn't want to see this news get to the ear of the emperor. Now he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Of course, all of the psychophants and hangers on in Herod's administration are are feeding at the trough and they don't want to rock the boat. If he falls, they fall with him. And that might spoil the party. Herod was an Edomite, the historic enemy of the people of God. But he married into the Jewish ruling class, a princess who was descended from the Maccabees, the ruling family in those centuries between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
So he knew enough about the Bible to know that the Jews were expecting a great Messiah king to rise. And then, of course, there was that other other prophecy that was in the air as well. And so this, this birth is a threat to power and to privilege, and Herod's afraid, and the ruling class are afraid. So he calls in the scribes and the chief priests, and he inquires of them when the Christ, where the Christ was to be born. They give the obvious answer. They knew. They know the scriptures. They know the prophecies back to front. And so they cite the prophecy. There in chapter 2, verse 6, they cite the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, that's where he's going to be born. You see, Matthew calls attention to the fact that the birth of our Lord Jesus fulfills the ancient prophecies. He does that over and over throughout the gospel. And so what does Herod do? Verse 7, he summons the wise men secretly. He finds out when the star appeared because he wants to know how old this kingly child is. And we know what he wants to do. We know, verse 13, that he will search for the child to destroy him. We know what happens in verse 16 and following, that he sends and kills all the male children in Bethlehem. We know that he will stop at nothing to secure his grip on power. He wants to get rid of any threat to his throne. He doesn't necessarily believe in the ancient prophecies about the Messiah, But he doesn't want anyone around in whom people may decide to place their hopes and to whom they will look to help them in their aspirations to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. And that's who he represents, Roman oppression. So there in verse 9, the wise men go on their way. And they go by themselves. Wasn't that weird? Jerusalem has just heard that the Messiah has been born. And who goes to look for him? The foreigners, the outsiders. Where are the chief priests? Where are the scribes? They knew the prophecies. They know that the people are longing for the Messiah. They know that these foreigners have gone through extraordinary lengths to come and pay homage to the new king. Something is obviously happening. But the wise men travel to Bethlehem alone. There is cold and heartless indifference from the very people Christ came to save. His people, they figure, well, to worship the king of kings will endanger my reputation, my position, my little kingdom, my life, my comfort. So no, that's not going to happen. What does the scripture say? He came to his own, but his own received him not. And how often God works in this way, brother and sister. People with all the privileges and all the power and all the knowledge and all the smarts, they get passed over. And the outsiders, the despised, the unimportant, they get to draw near to God in worship. Now, as the wise men go, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child 
was. Well, if you really think about it, stars don't do that, and stars can't do that. I mean, how can a star way up there in the heavens mark one particular village, let alone a particular house? And there are many clever explanations about rare conjunctions of the planets, about retrograde motion of the planets, because unlike the stars, the planets move through the heavens, and then sometimes they stop and seem to move back a little bit. We don't know what's going on here. At any rate, we know this. A bright celestial phenomenon gave the Magi sufficient information to find their way to where the baby king of kings was living. And that's all we need to know. And when they see that God is showing them the way, they rejoice. God is making it clear to them. And they come to the house. And going into the house, verse 11, they saw the child. Now notice it talks about a house. It doesn't talk about a stable. Things have moved on from the birth. Joseph seems to be putting roots down here. And we talked about why. They see the child Mary with his mother. The, the word used in Luke is baby. Luke talks about a baby when the shepherds visit. Matthew uses the word for an older child, a toddler. The Lord Jesus is a little toddler. Probably a few months past his first birthday at the most. Shepherds are long gone. They see him and they fall down and worship. We're like, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, they're the wise men. They fall down, they worship, they give gifts. Of course they do that. But think about this. What in the world are they thinking? Joseph and Mary are peasants. They're living in obscurity, in poverty. They're unknowns. And these wise men come with these royal, kingly gifts. They see a little child, a little toddler. They fall down. They prostrate themselves. And they worship him. That's what they've come to do. And that's what they do. They're not phased at all by his surroundings. There is more faith here in these wise men than in all of Jerusalem, the power center of the church. And they have royal treasures for a king. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Well, gold we know. We know that it's valuable. Frankincense and myrrh aren't really big things for us nowadays, but back then they were very, very expensive and valuable. There were centuries of trade in frankincense and myrrh. In the first century, this trade was at its height very valuable things. But there's more than just valuable treasures here. The gold speaks of royalty. And the church has, over the last 2,000 years, understood these gifts in this way. The gold speaks of royalty. The frankincense, it's incense. It's connected with prayer. The Bible connects incense with prayer and with the divine nature of our Lord. And the myrrh is also very nice-smelling which is important for those for the very hot and humid climate when you needed nice-smelling things to keep the smell away of your sweat. But the myrrh was also used for embalming. It was used for death. And so it reminds us of why Jesus came, why he was born, why God became man. God is spirit. God is life. God cannot die by definition. 
But God wanted to die for you and for your sin. God wanted to take the punishment that you and I deserve. And so God found the way, and the way was that he would become man. So he could suffer and die as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now Luther was giving a speech in Heidelberg in 1518, just after he nailed the thesis to the door the year before. And in that speech, in that lecture, he gave a description of two different theologies, the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. And the theology of glory is the type of theology that looks at the power structures of the arrogant human society and mind and extends that infinitely to describe what God is like and how he rules. So the world tries to imitate the church and jockey for position and and try to get a piece of the action and try to get into the positions of power and influence. And Luther said that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is the theology of the cross, that God works in the most unexpected ways, that his power is made perfect in weakness, that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. God turns the human power structures on their head. Now Mary, she was just a young girl when she became pregnant with the Lord Jesus. She could have been perhaps as young as 14 or 15 years old. But she knew her scriptures. She knew her theology. When we read her song there in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, she talks about the theology, not of glory, but of the cross. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. That's the gospel, the theology of the cross. You see it in the Lord Jesus' birth. You see it in his childhood. We read together the end of Matthew 2. And God providentially makes things so hot and so dangerous in Judea when Joseph and Mary come back from Egypt. Archelaus is reigning there. He's even more bloodthirsty than his dad. At one point, he surrounds 3,000 Jews with his cavalry and kills every last one of them because he was irritated with them. And Joseph figures that's not a good place for me to be. It's too dangerous. So the Lord drives him back to Nazareth. So that the prophets, what the prophets spoke might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. What does that mean? Well, a Nazarene is someone from the north, east of the land of Canaan. A no one. Someone despised, someone unimportant. Kind of like somebody saying, I've grown up and lived all my life in the remotest regions of Labrador. That's pretty far from the center of power, not very close to Ottawa. And that's where Jesus 
grows up. The wise men have the theology of the cross. They're not fooled by all the obscurity and the poverty and the weakness. They look at the child, the Christ child, and they worship the king of kings. But Herod and the leaders around him, they're driven by a theology of glory. They fear upheaval. They fear the loss of their power, their privilege, and their little kingdoms, and they lash out in terror. They're threatened by a baby. These are the two options, my brother, my sister, when we're confronted with the birth of the King of Kings. We either fight or we fall down and worship. And in verse 12, they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They depart to their own country by another way. They're warned because the angel knows what Herod is purposing to do. The King of Kings is here to shake things up. The king of kings is here to utterly destroy the kingdom of darkness, the arrogant and the cruel and the self-serving power of those who love power and privilege. And how will he destroy it? By humble and by loving and self-sacrificial service. And that scares the kingdom of darkness. And the devil launches a preemptive strike to attack the king of kings. The warfare is the option. Not, war, not worship, but warfare is the option for those who want to keep the status quo. The powerful, the happening people, the movers, the shakers, the cool people, the self-serving the self-promoting, the people who have got it all together. The birth of King Jesus threatens who they are and everything they have. It threatens to bring down the house of cards that they've carefully built up. And so they choose warfare. But for the poor, for the afflicted, for the broken, the outcast, and the suffering, the unimportant, the oppressed, those who do not have the power and the glory the poor, the weak, the miserable, the helpless sinners who can only cry out to God for help. For them, the birth of the Savior is the greatest news in the world. And they choose worship. Worship or warfare. The birth of the King of Kings demands a response. So what is your Reaction. What is your response? Worship or warfare? And don't answer too quickly. Because we live on the top of the heap. We are well above in the top 10% of the world as far as privilege and wealth and power goes. Poor people in distant lands slave away to maintain our way of life. We live better than the ancient emperors. We live better than Herod ever could imagine living. We have comfort and freedom and convenience and wealth that are unknown in the history of the human race since the fall. 
And where is Christianity flourishing? Where there was oppression and humiliation and persecution and death. There are millions of Chinese turning to Christ, hundreds of thousands of Iranians giving everything up to follow the Lord Jesus. What about us? Or you might say, well, we've got religious knowledge and we have religious practice. We know the right things. We do the right things. Well, you know what? The people in Jerusalem had that too. They were more than happy to talk about the Christ. They were were happy to know about him, to talk about him. But when they were confronted with what that means, it was too much. I'll follow Christ, but not if it's going to hurt. I'll follow Christ, but not if it's going to tear down my little kingdom. This good little thing I have going. Not if it costs me something. Then I'm out of here. Now, we don't read of a Chinaman Square scene where the religious leaders are standing in front of Herod's troops, stopping them from the slaughter of the innocents. They're looking the other way. You know what? There is no neutrality. You can't pretend not to be involved. The Lord Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. It is worship or it is warfare. And here is the gospel. Stop building your own kingdom. You don't need to carve out your place in the world. You can stop rushing around trying to shore up the house of cards, which is your kingdom and your glory, carefully crafted look and brand that you have on social media, your reputation, you looking good in the eyes of others. You can, you can stop with all that. You can stop asking, is this good for me? And you can start asking, is this the will of my king? You see, the gospel tells us that we can abandon the theology of glory. And we can embrace the theology of the cross. If any man would come after me, says the Lord Jesus, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because this is the way of glory. It leads through humiliation. This is the way of life. It leads through suffering and death. So come to the cradle and come to the Christ. Come and adore him, Christ the Lord. Come in the faith that acknowledges that you can't run your life, but he can. That you are not in control, but he is. That you are not sovereign, but Christ is. Come in the faith that chooses to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Come in the faith that considers the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Come in the conviction that even though it's really hard to see right now, His is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Come and fall. Don't fight. Don't flee. But fall. Fall down and worship Christ the King, Christ the Lord, Christ the Savior of the world. 
And what can you bring him? What can you bring him as you worship? Gold? Frankincense? Myrrh? I love this poem by Christina Rossetti, a 19th century poet. I'm just going to read a few lines to end the sermon from this Christmas poem she wrote. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. But his mother, only in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give my heart. Have you given your heart to the King of Kings? Amen. Well, let's sing with all our heart and let's worship.